Hello, this is the Making Europe podcast to accompany the Making Europe book series. So, who did make Europe? This podcast may change your outlook on modern European history and how the European Union came to be. Each podcast in this series gives a new story that provides clues as to why the EU is potentially being unmade, giving insights to the challenges and debates facing the continent. Your interviewer is Geraldine Bloomfield. She will be interviewing the authors of the six editions to discover the alternative stories from the history of technology that shaped and influenced the Europe we know today. Hello, I have with me today um, the co-authors of Building Europe on Expertise. We have um, Helmut Trischler, Professor of Modern History at the University of Munich and Professor Martin Kolrusch from the University of Leuven in Belgium. Welcome. Pleasure to be here. Before we hear from our authors, we're going to dive into the story. Launching Europe into Space November 5th, 1971, was a bright day at Kourou in French Guiana. The sky was clear, allowing an attentive audience to watch an attempt to launch the European flag into space as the third nation after the two superpowers, the US and the Soviet Union, to do so. What the assembled spectators saw was an impressive four-stage rocket with a telling name Europa, initiated by the European Launcher Development Organization, ELDO, the predecessor of today's ESA, the European Space Agency. The countdown went well. After ignition, the vehicle left the launch pad and disappeared into the skies. For a short while, the flight seemed to be successful. But after two and a half minutes, the first stage disconnected, immediately followed by an explosion of the second and third stages. The rocket perished, and with it, the pride and hopes of Europe. What had gone wrong? The technical factors that led to the disaster were relatively easy to identify. An investigation committee of senior experts found that one of the key problems was the poor communication between the British contractor, Marconi, and its West German corporate counterparts. Marconi had built an impenetrable information barrier around the modules it had produced. The West German engineers accepted this boundary and responded by refusing any responsibility for these parts of the system. Europa may have failed for technical reasons, but more notably, it had failed due to massive governance issues between nations. National governments jealously control their investments into the rocket. Returns were expected, in the shape of contracts for their national research laboratories and industries, whatever their capabilities. Rather than fostering transnational collaboration from the bottom up, the ELDO member states 
sought to acquire as much knowledge and resources as possible from the joint undertakings. The individual countries used the European cooperation to enhance their own national status and prestige, rather than to truly join forces. German, British, Italian, Dutch or French gains mattered more ultimately than Europe as the whole. Europe, however, learned its lesson from the Aldo disaster. After complicated negotiations, Western Europe created the European Space Agency, ESA, as a supranational organization that was much more independent from the influence of the member states. Within ESA, the techno-scientific experts were the ones mainly in charge, not politicians and government officials. Based on expert knowledge, ESA successfully developed rocket launchers, numerous satellites and Earth observation programs. ESA became an emblem for European integration, a lesson in how to cooperate and organize for successful collaborations in European science and technology. Mapping European partnerships in space, however, shows a much richer picture. During the Cold War, Eastern Europe created an equivalent to ESA, named Intercosmos. In April 1967, the Soviet government initiated the Intercosmos program, which over the next decade pursued numerous space exploration missions. And a decade later, the program expanded to include manned missions. Starting with a check, the program enabled 14 non-Soviet cosmonauts to go to space. Francis Jean-Loup Chrétien was the last to fly before the program ended in November 1988, just as the Cold War collapsed. The project allowed the Soviet Union to exert political supremacy through technical and scientific collaborations. The exchange of knowledge and resources was asymmetric because of the Soviet Union's political dominance and equal collaboration was never intended. The participation of states outside the Soviet bloc, such as India, Syria and even France, reflected the Soviet Union's politics of cooperation with non-aligned states to win them over during the Cold War. Nevertheless, Intercosmos offered opportunities for the Warsaw Pact allies to obtain limited access to the Soviet space sector's gigantic knowledge machine and to develop expertise. The history of Europeans dreaming of space provides a rich picture of European integration bringing together experts and their biographies with both national and European traits. The crucial role experts played in the early space agencies were similar to the important place experts employed in the formulation of European nation-states themselves. Italy or Germany in the 19th century, or Poland and Czechoslovakia in the 20th century, could only pursue their national projects with the support of experts who could bring their political and economic ambitions to life to prove that these new states aligned with established nation-states. In a similar way, 
the emerging European community needed to establish itself as a potential third player next to the space race superpowers. The European space projects show the symbolic significance of experts in nation-building and the European project alike. The rockets of the 1970s have an equivalent in the railway networks and the steamships of the 19th century. These achievements of technical experts fueled the imagination of large audiences on a national, European and even global level. In turn, experts always juggle between their national and transnational realms. So Martin, what inspired you um, to research this story from a personal point of view? Why did you choose to talk about the space projects, the European space projects? Yeah, what um, we found interesting is um, to shift focus to not only look at the institution as such, but experts, experts as as human beings. And as soon as these human ex- as these experts come into the picture, the picture also changes. So you get into the picture the biographies, their pasts, um, their pasts which are European but also mm-hmm. defined by their national um, biographies or their biographies in nation states, the past um, in the Second World War in many cases, the ruptures in their lives, and this interplay of biography, institution, technology. This is um, what makes this story so fascinating. Mm. Is there any one of the scientists that particularly stood out for you? Could you paint a picture of anyone that you um, felt was particularly... Well, in that story, there is uh, one person, the head actually of the German uh, team, uh, Günther Bock, who, whose biography manifests this complicated history of Europe. So he, he uh, grew up in in the in the na- nationalist socialist uh, space program, if you wish, so he he, he built rocket and, and and airplanes uh, for the Nazi. Uh, Was that the V twos? Uh, the V two and yeah. and and this um, massive retaliation uh, weapons like the Messerschmitt uh, jet engine. So he was involved in that program, and after that he was captured by the by the Soviet Union and had to go for a couple of years to to the Soviet Union to build uh, Russian weapons and only was allowed to return back to Germany in 1955. So he experienced uh, these different regimes in Europe and only then became a, so to speak, Europeanized person in engaging in this um, uh, European program that uh, launched uh, the Elder Rocket uh, that eventually became a failure. Uh, so, so he, he, his broken biography, going through different um, regimes, uh, autocratic regimes, but then also a European, uh, true European regime, uh, manifests, as I said, this complicated European story. Mm. So these scientists were being truly European in their approach. They were truly European in their approach, particularly. In um, in in the early fifties and, and sixties, when they were still somehow, uh, you know, affected by by the Second World War and the experience that uh, Europe was falling apart, yeah. They, so they wanted to build up a peaceful, truly European integrated uh, new nation, if you wish, a, a European 
nation because of this uh, uh, experiment and experience to be bound uh, to autocratic uh, regime. Uh, and they want also wanted to oppose, uh, you know, the binary logic of, of the Cold War. Here is the United States. Here are, uh, is Russia. They want to be uh, uh, build up a civilian European new identity. A third way within third the Cold, way, cold War context. Right. Though yes. it's also, I think, important to understand that even if these experts were not fully committed Europeans, these European organizations, institutions become terribly attractive to them because they allow them to build their schemes on a larger scale than a national or in the national framework would have been possible. And also on the long run, you see that their, their, their leeway, their independence in these institutions is bigger than on the national scale. Because they are so complex, they are so complicated, it's more difficult for national politicians to interfere there with budgets, other... Um, a wonderful example for uh, if we return to space yeah, is please um, do. you know is is uh, again European Space Agency and their current pro one of their current projects is not just to go to the Mars it's all the, the Galileo project which we all use uh, to Can you with, with talk our us smartphones yeah. right yeah okay the, the GPS if you wish of of Europe is a result That's of the Galileo of, project of of, uh, of Galileo Can we project. just backpedal a little bit about the if you took Talk to us about the Galileo project for for the audience. That would be okay. So the Ga Galileo project is the European equivalent to GPS. Uh, uh, that's that's the American program, very much a military program. It's it's organized by the U.S. Uh, military authorities. So in case of crisis, for example, uh, the U.S. Uh, military could just shut down uh, GPS, and we would no more be able to use our smartphones. Or if uh, autonomous driving will show up, we would not be uh, uh, capable anymore to use our cars. Yeah, so uh, Europe decided to run their own system, build up Galileo uh, uh, to launch thirty satellites into the space and have its own independent program where the U.S. military or the Ru Russian military could not intervene in case so, of, of crisis. So another replaying of a similar situation with the modern day technology. Exactly. Yeah. Um, can you tell me um, a bit about the story with uh, the satellites that were produced by France and Germany? And we had uh, the story at the beginning of how the Europa 2 rocket exploded. Um, and then that led to the satellites looking for a different way into space. Can you talk to us about that? Because that's a, that's a really... Okay, that brings us back to the 60s and 70s when Europe um, was very much still dependent on the, on the let's say, German uh, Franco axis. Yeah? So the core Europe is often Great Britain, uh, it's France. Not for long. And it's, uh, yeah, that's right. No, today, <laughs> it's, today it's different, uh, yeah, but back but, then, uh, no. uh, uh, you're, you're right, Great Britain was always out. a kind of reluctant European nation. Yeah. Uh, and there were the other two nations, uh, Germany and France, Uh, who, uh, which from the experience of the uh, Second World War, tried to build a new Europe based on, on truly international collaboration. So these two nations often collaborated inside and outside of the European Union, or what was back, back then the European Economic uh, um, Community. So they, they, for example, they did bilateral uh, satellites like the Symphony Project, in the 60s and 70s, but they also collaborated on it, if you wish, a truly uh, uh, European base. It's often what we're experiencing 
when we look at experts, it's multiple Europe's. It's, uh, it, uh, we see a Franco-German Europe. We see a European Union Europe. We see a Europe that's much bigger than uh, the European territories, which, for example, the Galileo project, which has been mentioned earlier. So there's China in that Europe, uh, par partaking in this European project. There's Russia. Uh, there's even the United States. Um, uh, so this is, this is even a bigger Europe. Galileo is a European project, but many other nations, like Indonesia, you name it, are partaking in that European-led uh, program. So if you wish, often Europe is um, have, having multiple faces, having multiple geographies. It's not just the Europe, European that we see on the map uh, and have learned as seeing as Europe. It's, it's multiple Europe's, and we try to map these different geographies of Europe uh, led by experts in the book. Perhaps talk about uh, satellites or rockets. It's also something I think we could sh show in the book how important it is to visualize these expertise, to have infrastructures, technical devices, which show um, the, the power of experts. In the 19th century, these are dams, uh, railway construction, uh, big, yeah, architecture, obviously, and in the um, period of European integration, space, rockets, missiles, um, satellites take, to a certain degree, take on this role these other infrastructures, these other devices had in the, in the early 20th century. But also the, the experts, you, yeah. see, you see the European astronauts, yeah? So yeah. The, each and every European nation has its own ast astronaut, which which uh, is perceived as being a national hero, but also a European hero. Yeah? So I have multiple identities. Wupo Ockels, the, the, the Dutch uh, astronaut, is seen as a hero, as a star of, 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 of the Netherlands, but he's also seen as a representation, as a figure of Europe, of a true, truly integrated Europe. So these are European astronauts, but they're also national astronauts. Again, we see this multiple or dual identity of, of experts in Europe. If I may add on here briefly, this is another recurrent theme of the visibility of experts. So if when we started to think about experts, we thought experts, they are so powerful because they work behind the scenes. So you don't see them, they pull the strings, and um, the, the, it's, the basic story is that they're invisible, and this is why they are so powerful. But um, in many instances, they, they step up front, you see them, they become symbols for the nation states, for a particular discipline, for a particular technology. And again, that's mutual, uh, like somebody like Einstein, he can at certain instances be a German scientist, at other instances he's a representation of Jewish scientists, then of international scientists, then of his discipline, um, then American and so forth. And uh, this works on, on many different levels and we see this again with the, with the astronauts or cosmonauts in the, in the East after the Second World War. So mul multiple identities, mm. multiple Europes. Multiple Europes, that's yeah. right. So can I ask you about um, if we look particularly now at this point in time, um, how experts are often being viewed within the particular political discourse that we are hearing around the rise of populism, the place of the expert within, within that, the reverence that maybe the expert would have had in previous years. It's almost like experts are is a little bit of a dirty word. It's definitely getting bad press to be an expert. 
and yet they're so essential for nation building for so how can you talk to me about how you think this will uh, manifest and play out I completely agree I think there is since probably already the 1960s 70s kind of disillusion that one thinks these experts they do things which do not necessarily benefit the the wider population and it's it's not connected to what the people really need any longer it's it's kind of yeah expertise for expertise's sake um and it's like academics in yeah, ivory towers, yeah. isn't it? It's, it's the in the connection. ivory tower, exactly. Yeah. And this, what, what for a long time was a kind of the secret, um, um, the secret of their power to say we are not, we are not politicians. Or we um, we have the expert inside, and this was for a long time very, very convincing. And you can show this in, in many different instances. I don't think this is enough any longer. This is not convincing as such. To simply say this is a expert, he has expertise due to certain diplomas or certain ach- achievements. This wouldn't uh, convince people. On the other hand, I would also see a certain, I I think there's also a certain return of these experts. There's also an uneasiness um, with um, failing infrastructures, with um, um, uh, lack of ability to meet the the, the climate uh, change um, um, challenges. And it's very clear that experts uh, are needed and that one needs also to give a certain leeway a certain power to these experts to bring them in in the picture again of probably in more enlightened ways than one perhaps did um, in history or did 20 30 years ago but there is to my mind also a return of these experts also of the hope um, in experts and we also see experts entering the stage again also becoming visible visible again perhaps we should say a word on why we chose to speak about Experts. When we started the book, if I recall it rightly, Helmut, um, we chose the term expert also because it, it, it's, it's a broader term. We were also interested in engineers, architects who are not scientists proper. This would have been the alternative to, to focus on, on scientists. And then we, when, when thinking about what is an expert, uh, we more and more realized an expert is somebody who's also accepted by society as such, by the public as such, not only by the peers, but by a wider public, also by politicians. And this makes the term so interesting because it also explains something. And this, um, I completely agree, although now, nowadays um, experts are seen very critically. But also in the 19th century, early 20th century, there's a constant negotiation, renegotiations of what experts should be. Like the engineers coming up in the 19th century, they have a very, very hard time to become accepted as experts. So, for so a long it's a time similar it said, struggle. It's a similar struggle. Mm. For a long time it said, uh, these are people who uh, they are mere inventors or they know a little bit about some devices, but they're not really authorities. And to, to gain authority is a very, very long process. It's also fighting the old mm. elites and their their authority. It's, it's really a struggle, which um, is in certain, mm. uh, to a certain degree still underway. So yes, we th- talked about very prominent experts, but uh, we also wanted to talk about this hidden uh, expertise uh, that uh, is behind what we what we could call the European machinery. You know, it's not just uh, the European Commission. It's it's many, many programs that Europe has launched in techno-scientific collaboration that takes uh, place behind the scene, but it's very important to build up 
what we uh, what we call a European knowledge society, a European knowledge making machinery, hundred thousands of collaborations that are underway each and every day in Europe, where uh, European um, scientists, engineers easily collaborate uh, across borders yeah, in very many projects. Re literally, hundred thousands of projects are are also sponsored by by the European Union. And this has an impact, which is often yeah, behind the scene. It's not that visible by uh, by voters and public uh, publics in Euro Europe, but play a, a crucial role in in uh, shaping modern Europe. Mm -hmm. The infrastructures, the governance, the product, the commercial. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so for both of you, um, if we can fast forward 20 years, 30 years, how do you believe the role of experts will be viewed um, and how do you think we should be conceiving of the word expert going forward? Okay, I think that this is a very personal thing uh, to envision what's happening, uh, will be happening in, in 30 years from now. I'm also running a center for environmental uh, humanities. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm very much interested personally and professionally in environmental issues like climate change, like loss of biodiversity. And to me, uh, we are in a specific situation today where we have to take actions, also exp experts, being an expert myself in, in this case. So uh, like the, the whole debate about climate change, loss of biodiversity diversity again, um, is, is very much based on technoscientific I'm sorry, techno-scientific knowledge, on experts' knowledge. We need expertise more than ever to cope with the current problems. And in 30 years from now, uh, these problems will even be uh, accelerated. So I, I think we're even more dependent on techno-scientific knowledge, which also has to come together with normative knowledge. So yes, experts informing the norms and have, values. Have, yeah. have to be, yeah, have not just to play out their techno-scientific rational but also, you know, projecting forward what they're doing today. What that, what will that mean in 30 years from now? Yeah, uh, marching with Extinction Rebellion with their banners. Exactly, and I mean, I, I, I've led, for example, the, the the March for Science in in Munich uh, a year ago. So I, I thought I'm, I'm feeling responsibility to stand out uh, and 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 express my voice here. Yeah, as Sir David Attenborough does with the public in the UK it's almost like there needs to be stepping away from stepping back that experts have done um, through lots of periods of history and putting themselves into the fore to create the social change that's needed to address the grand challenges. Create the social ch change and the scientific yeah. change we've had. We have the Fridays for Future, but we also have the Scientists for Future. Yeah. And uh, that was the, one of the first things I did. I, of course, I, I signed that mem memorandum of the Scientists for the Future. I think we have a, a responsibility of experts to also to be a, a public faces, yeah, to be to be a, a European citizen and to express our voices as experts, but also as public figures. Mm -hmm. Perhaps an interesting question here is, and hopefully our book contributes to this to answer this question is how to narrate these challenges because of climate change. It's well known that many of the facts are established already in the 70s, even even earlier. It's not a problem of, of that the facts are not there. It's a question of getting them through, uh, to narrate Engagement. them also in a way um, that, that people 
understand these 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 uh, challenges and here experts also come in and, and experts have to be visible and of course we shy away a bit from from personalizing problems and we don't want to um, narrate problems through one or two persons on the other hand it's a very effective um, way to do this and we can also see in in european history or global history could call almost expert celebrities, like techno celebrities, I call them somewhere, like a, a strange mixture of people who, who come from a very complicated, have a very com background and very complicated discipline, but still make it like Stephen Hawkins or yeah. Einstein also, others to, to become famous. And um, of course, this is always to a certain degree problematic because it's, it's uh, reducing complexity. On the other hand, I think we need this. And we also need the these figures, these science communication. Yeah. But we also need these, uh, these uh, persons, these, these celebrities in order to make clear what is at stake and to get through the message. So who's um, your techno celebrities? Techno Tell celebrities. me yours, yours right now. Who would you, who would you hold up as a, a great example of that? I think um, I mean he's he's not not, not a solely positive character, but Elon Musk is to a certain yeah. degree a, a techno celebrity, somebody who promises huge advance, advances in the future and somehow channels this promise into um, personal fame, action. right? Yeah. With action, mm -hmm. yeah. This would be one example. I mean, to me, is, is for example John John Huber, one of the leading figures in climate change in Europe, yeah, who stands out, uh, stands up and says, okay, we are in an urgent need here to change our habits, change our trajectories as citizens, as European govern governments. As European has to have a voice when it comes to climate change. Europe, Europe can afford it to change their energy systems, to do an energy transition that uh, is, is heavily needed to fight climate change and so on. And he... So he even convinces the Pope to go out and, and write the encyclica and, and these kind of... So, so these persons, I think, are another uh, form of techno-celebrities. One thing I want uh, to comment on, because I think also us as historians are needed to come up with new narratives. So what I'm talking about often is about uh, the, the role of us writing stories of slow hope that provide slow hope, not, not just not just telling declensionist story that everything you know is declining and we have no chance to survive but to, to but to provide hope to convince also people that it uh, it it pays off you know to engage and to en to engage in in all kinds of changing habits changing personal habits changing institutions to fight climate change to fight biodiversity loss and to, uh, and these kind of um, slow hope stories we haven't uh, been able to put into that book, but this is something that, that I think is even more needed in the future. And one of the next books will be, will be about slow hope. We will look forward to that. So thank you, our experts on the experts, for joining us today. It's been great talking with you. Great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So that concludes this episode. To know more about the Making Europe book series, visit makingeurope.eu. To join the debate, find us on Twitter, subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcast platform and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening.
the Making Europe podcast was initiated by Johan Schott, financed by the Foundation for the History of Technology, the Center for Global Challenges at Utrecht University, and the Netherlands Institute for Advanced Studies. The podcast is realized and produced by Sun City, Geraldine Bloomfield, and Susanne Lommers.